The shot is in through traffic from Miguel Layun. No more doses here in Columbus. Bobby Wood got through. Bobby Wood levels the score. In the near post, puts the long. It's in. Mexico retake the lead. And it had to be Rafael Marquez who's done it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition, maybe not the happiest edition, but special nonetheless, of today's Corner Kicks podcast. We're going to be talking about the U.S. men's national team uh, and their first hexagonal match against Mexico on Friday night, which ended in a 2-1 loss. I'm not sure we can call it a shock loss, especially considering kind of the balance of play from the game itself. Uh, But Paulie and I are here with you. We are without Seb, but we're going to be trying to hash out just what went wrong, how and why, and where the national team has to go moving forward from this. Um, First of all, Paulie, I mean, what are your kind of general impressions from the game? It sucked. (laughs) I thought you were going to say something on that order. Uh, Yeah, it just, it just, it didn't go right. It's it's as simple as that. It didn't go right. And people want to make excuses. And ultimately, the bottom line is it didn't go right. Mexico's a good team, and that's something you have to remember. And we got beat. But, I mean, do you feel, so, before we started recording you and I touched a little bit on this to say, okay, it didn't go right. I mean, do you, do you think that Jurgen Klinsman got it wrong in terms of the squad selection in terms of how they lined up on the field or a combination of both? Or was it just that the players just didn't show up and do the job the way that we wanted to, them to? Um, it's, it's not so simple. I'm not going to, I first, I definitely don't think he got it wrong. All right. I am firmly in the, I know I am in the extreme minority on this, but uh, the people that are criticizing him for it, I think, are just being lazy, and they're just, it's the same old narrative. It's whenever the U.S. loses, you got to blame Klinsman, and let's figure out how we can blame him. Oh, the team didn't line up the same way that they always line up, or the, like, we all predicted who he was going to start, and then we got the prediction wrong, and now we're upset that, you know, we don't control the team. Um, He didn't get it wrong. I don't know if I'm going to go as far as to say he got it 100% right, but, well, he didn't get it 100% right. Jermaine Jones never should have been on the field. Yeah, Yeah, I I agree with that entirely. uh, Jermaine Jones is coming off an injury. He had played one game, and Sasha Question, I thought, did a really good job in the last four games, had earned the right to be there, and I thought he was starting to develop a great partnership with Bradley. Apparently the fact that he just broke his nose or something last week, and the MLS playoffs, that might have played into... But, but I mean, that kind of an injury isn't... I mean, maybe it's going to make you come a little more hesitant when you're going to try to win a header, but 50-50s in the air are hardly the bread and butter Ooh. of this game to begin with. Ooh, that's not, that's not what it'll affect. It'll affect your breathing. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, that's fair. I mean, but then again, also, you and I were texting about this during the game, that the fact that he wasn't at least one of the substitutes was kind of criminal. Right. This, the substitutions was like mind boggling. If, if we re let's let's recap the subs. We yeah. subbed a goalie out of necessity. We subbed a right back and we subbed a center back. The, that's more defensive than what Louis Van Hall used to do for United last year. That I used to complain about every week. I mean, we remember that back in in March and April when I would complain every week that he was just subbing defenders and in in these nil nil games, and that's why we weren't scoring any goals. 
three defensive subs. So yeah, it's it's, it's unfortunate that question never really came on the field. At the same time, that you can argue that at the end of the game, we really we had our best attacking players on the field. I mean, you're not gonna, I don't know, maybe. Julian Green offers something else going forward, but where was he going to play? Yeah, we were, um, we were talking about that at the Outlaws Bar here in Missoula that a lot of people were calling for him to show up. But again, I mean, I think that, you know, maybe maybe you put him in for Fabian Johnson, who I think that, uh, again, we were corresponding during the game, I think that he was more effective in the second half when Klinsman switched him down the right-hand side of the left-hand side, but still, he... He did. He didn't look like the player that we've kind of come to expect him to be. And you know, either either Julian Green or Sacha Kleiston coming into this game, you have to at least hope that they could make an impact. And instead, with two defensive-minded substitutions, and then ending the game, get, like conceding a late winner, boy, it's really it's even harder to justify them than because I think that Paul, you and I would be complaining about the kind of cagey tactical decisions that the manager made, even if this game had ended 1-1, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, Johnson was definitely playing better in in the second half, uh, playing down the right side. He still, when it comes to overall, for, if he was absolutely playing like dog crap, then I understand taking him out, but he was playing better. And when you think about it, or, you know, when you run the numbers, he is our either our best or our second best um, attacking player and creative player. I think it's probably fair to say that at 18 years old and with just four games under his belt, Christian Pulisic has actually already eclipsed Johnson in that realm, and and he's the best player in that regard. But Johnson's second best. I would have taken out – if you're going to bring on Julian Green, I would have taken off Altidore, but that's never going to happen under Jurgen Quinsman. The same way that – Mr. I can't pass the ball six yards. Michael Bradley is never going to not start again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's talk about Christian Pulisic for a minute, because I think that he's one of the bright spots from this match. Right. I think that he he's the bright spot in every match. The kid is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he looks like the caliber of a talent you would expect, a newly turned 19 year old who's turning heads in a major European league to look like. And every he turned 18. What's that? I said uh, he just turned eighteen, not nineteen. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, uh, yeah don't don't chop a year off his career. Right? <laughs> yeah, and just in September too. Gosh, I mean, but yeah. he. I mean, this is this is a guy who like, you know, he made his international debut and goes back to Dortmund and still has to get dropped off at the practice facility by his dad because he couldn't drive. Yeah, I mean, the like, God. Uh, it, but but every time you're speaking about Bradley, right? That every yes. time Bradley and Pulisic hink, linked up, it looked it looked to me, you know, to use a, a collegiate or high school analogy, right? It looked like it was Bradley who was the new debutante freshman entering into the team who was kind of nervous on the ball, handing it off to the seasoned and confident attacking midfielder, not the other way around, right? Like right. It, looked, it looked like Pulisic was the one who'd been around the block and Bradley was kind of maybe a little out of his depth. And it's, it's almost, it's almost like a passing the torch moment. It's like Bradley has to learn, like, this is the new, the new way it's going to go. Like yeah. the offense is going to run through this kid and I need to adapt my game to that. And it, 
he might struggle to do that. And the way you said it, it really reminded me of that game uh, against Mexico in April of 2014 when Landon Donovan came on as a sub in a 2-2 game. And he couldn't it's – it's like the same thing. It's Landon Donovan being like, this is going to be my role with the team going forward. I'm going to come off the bench and try to make an impact. And he couldn't link up with Dempsey or Bradley to save his life. And ultimately, that's why he was left off the World Cup roster. Yeah, I, I, but that's, I mean, maybe the only, well, I mean, Bradley had a couple decent balls into the box, but. He had a 2v1 at the end of the game with Bobby Wood, and he chose to take the shot where Bobby oh, yeah. Wood, that was, play him in, and, uh, and you win the game. I was just, that, that I was screaming about that one. It's like, come on, man, you have to know what a 1-2 pass is. You have to. I mean, <laughs> but to, to go, uh, this is, this is why you lost the game, though. And to come, to go back to it. Everybody's blaming Jurgen Quinsman for the formation and how bad the three, what we said was a 3-5-2. Quinsman was pretty adamant that it was a 3-4-3, and at times it did look like that with Pulisic actually being the central striker, which was interesting. Um, but it, it allowed Pulisic to really have that freedom, which was great because he's a creative player, and this was the idea behind it was uh, let Pulisic roam around, be free, and and create while also not having to have him worry about defensive responsibilities. So in a way, it just simplifies a big game for a young kid, which is a good thing. Um, The funny thing is, is earlier this week, uh, my friend friend G chatted me and just said, am I crazy for thinking that a 3-5-2 with Fabian Johnson and DeAndre Yedlin as wingbacks would actually work really well for this team? And my response was, you're not at all. That's at, like, that's, that is most likely our best formation. And going forward, it probably will be. I just said, I don't think Jurgen Klinsmann would just institute it right now. It would be a little bit drastic. And he did do that. And the truth is, going forward, it will be the U.S.'s best formation because they are built for it. And the 3-5-2 really enables them to play most of their players in the best position for them. Yeah. Uh, if you've been watching, if you've been watching the Bundesliga this year, and, and I don't know how much you watch, I try to watch it, but really I only end up watching Dortmund. So yeah. I don't get to see a lot of John Brooks, but I have, I know someone who's a big Bayern Munich fan, a big Bundesliga fan. He watches them all. And in September he started raving about him. He was like, dude, yeah. I know you know about it because of the Copa America, but this John Brooks guy is not only turning into like one of the best defenders in the Bundesliga, but he looks like the kind of guy that would just be the perfect defender to be the middle, the middle guy in a back three. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, with those other two players aforementioned and, you know, sending them down the wings is that they also provide excellent compliments to that. And I think that it's, you know, speaking of the Bundesliga and, you know, Christian Pulisic's place at Dortmund. Yeah, he's a really exciting player. We've already been talking about how confident he seems on the ball, you know, beyond his years, certainly certainly by American national standards. But you look at Dortmund, and then you look at Hertha BSC, who for, you know, John Brooks is the center of that defense. I mean, Hertha BSC sits two points ahead of Dortmund in fourth place right now. And this is a club that has been struggling to stay in the top flight in Germany 
to begin with. Now, granted, we don't know that they're going to end up in fourth place, but I do think that, you know, to your friend's point, Pauly, that having a, a really strong center back at the heart of defense is crucial for a team to you know, be challenging for a title. And I mean, but, but how did, how do you rate John Brooks's performance last night? Because I'm, I'm kind of of two minds about it. I am of two minds of it too. I, he got baited into making a lot of dumb fouls and he got baited into it. He also got targeted. Uh, I think some of those fouls were just, I'm really big and you're much smaller than me. And, uh, you know, a little thing crashes into big thing. What happens? Little thing goes flying. And, uh, like I, it happens to me when I play hockey all the time, I skate into guys much bigger than me and I go flying. It's not a penalty on them. It's just, you're bigger than me. And in this game, in this regard, he got called for it. Um, I think he was lucky that he didn't get sent off in the first half. Yeah. But you also yeah, have yeah. to remember, you also have to remember, he is inexperienced. John Brooks is pretty inexperienced. This was his first ever I mean, World Cup qualifying. He's, he's what, 23, 24? Yes, but I'm, I'm more referencing um, the, the CONCACAF aspect. Yeah. Christian Pulisic at this point has four times as much experience in World Cup qualifiers than John Brooks. Yeah, I mean, I've... this was this was John Brooks's first World Cup qualifying match. The only other Concacaf experience he has is the Gold Cup, so there's still a a learning curve for him. Also, you know, like I'm going to use my size and I'm going to be physical, but you know, sometimes the guys are smaller than me and they go flying and, and it looks bad, and the ref the ref blows it dead for a challenge, and and the same thing used to happen to Oguchi Onyewu. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Man, gosh, he's that's a name I haven't thought of in a minute. Yeah, because he stopped being a good defender. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it. I just the the formation. I thought the formation changed. My first reaction when I saw the when I saw the starting eleven was, I don't like it. I love it because again, we we talk about this all the time. We don't have a left back, which means Fabian Johnson has to play left back, which is such a waste of his talent. So playing him as the wing back, you know, helps. Like that solves that issue and it allows him to get forward and join the attack. Um, we also have holding midfielder problems. The biggest problem that this team always had for like, the last five years was uh, we need to play a 4-4-2 because Josie Altador can't play as a lone striker. But Bradley and Jones together in a 4-4-2 doesn't work because they both like to get forward. It, we've solved that issue a little bit in the recently because Bradley sits deeper now, which solves the issues. But ultimately by playing this three five two now, you don't you have you have John Brooks behind the defenders and you you know, Bradley they played a uh, according to Quinsman it was a three four three and they played with a flat four, which means Bradley and Jones were playing the same position that they always play. And everybody keeps blaming our crap play in the first 25, 30 minutes for on the formation and how we weren't used to it. And yes, there is an element of we need to get used to something, but that's really more on the back three and how to, how to get, how to make coverage when, you know, balls are played down the wings and the central midfielders need to fill in for the defenders. Uh, The formation isn't to blame for the fact that Bradley looked like he was always right on top of Josie Altidore or, or Christian Pulisic, you know, you shouldn't be there anyway. Like you're you're still supposed to be the deep line playmaker. You shouldn't be all the way at the edge of the eighteen, 
like when a ball comes in, yeah. you and Altador are both fighting for it, and you're both on top of yeah. each other. The formation isn't to blame for the fact that Bradley couldn't string a six-yard pass together. The formation isn't to blame for the fact that when he had the ball in the middle of the field and Timmy Chandler's running wide open on the right side, uh, that Bradley can't get him the ball. That's not the formation's fault. That was Bradley playing like an idiot or just not playing well at all. And ultimately, that's why we lost, not because of the formation. Yes, we, we changed back to the 4-4-2, but, and we played better. But again, like by, doing, by playing that 3-5-2, it allows you to move Pulisic inside and give him freedom and play him where he's going to be at his best. It allows you to play Jones and Bradley in a, in a spot where they're going to be at their best. It allows Fabian Johnson to get up the field and play really well. And let's, I, I understand we're, we're saying we never played this way before. We played a hybrid of this formation against Ecuador uh, in the Copa America, and it worked really well. And don't be naive to think that every day in training we didn't practice this formation for a week. Yeah. I mean, so, well, I mean, let's talk about some of the things that were working last night. In addition to Christian Pulisic, I think that Bobby Wood had a great game. I mean, obviously it's easier to say that considering he's the U.S.'s lone goal scorer, but he had a couple of other opportunities, you know, both that one that we were saying earlier that we're just screaming for Bradley to play him in and a pretty easy pass that could have and maybe should have flipped the three points in the other direction. Uh, he also had a great turn and shot on a volley that um, – you know, forced Ooh, nice. to a save. Yeah, that was a that was a beautiful piece of skill from him. Uh, so I, I think that his, his, you know, really to my mind, the two major bright spots in what was an ultimately frustrating performance are Christian Pulisic and Bobby Wood, because I think that he he looked like the kind of dynamic, quick moving player. Um, dare I say it? Dare I say it? Not totally different from a Marcus Rashford. <laughs> but and like hooked up with Pulisic very hey, well. Hey, you went there, not me. I know, I know. Um, but I, but I do think I would that, not have thought to make that comparison. But but you want to make that comparison by all means. Well, but you know, it's just similar in terms of his movement and relying more on kind of quick bursts of pace and accuracy than blinding power or you know a major large frame to kind of hold up play and muscle players off of the ball uh, but i but i do think and that, uh, putting the ball in that that too yeah, well yes also that um gosh boy i but uh, i mean i this... agree with you about wood 100% wood was phenomenal and it only references the point of you know every article and every fan complaint that i'm reading is uh, would an out the door, you know, oh, wow, they played really well together and they're forming a great partnership. No, they're not. Like, what games are you guys watching? I understand they've scored like eight goals together as a partnership, but it's the worst eight goal partnership you've ever seen. Most of those goals either are out the door getting on the end of a cross from Pulisic or somebody that's not named Bobby Wood or Bobby Wood just, you know, scoring a goal. That's more of his doing. And I, I understand the goal last night came from a pass from Altidore, which was nice. But the skill set that Bobby Wood possesses, one of the reasons we were so good in the Copa America is because he stretched out defenses and Quinn Dempsey could take advantage of all that space. Josie Altidore is not the kind of player that can take advantage of that space. Josie Altidore is the kind of player that can hold up play. And yeah. everybody just talks about how he can hold up play because he can't do anything else. 
He can't pass. He's not a good passer. He's not good with the ball at his feet. He doesn't create goals for himself. And one of the things that really stood out to me yesterday was Bobby Wood's ability to hold up play. And I said, when we started the show and you asked, like, did Quinsby get it right? get it wrong. And I said, he didn't get it wrong, but, or he didn't get it a hundred percent right. My complaints with Quinsman is one, Jermaine Jones is on the field. And two is the fact that he said this Bobby Wood and Josie Altidore partnership is set in stone. It's the fact that he is so sold on Josie Altidore. And this has been my complaint with Quinsman for years now. It's what game are you watching? Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, and, and people will be like, well, he has 30 something goals. And again, you know, he's got 16 goals in world cup qualifying. 13 of them are at home. He doesn't score away from the United States. All of his goals that have been that have come outside the United States, I think he scored once or twice at the Confederations Cup. And every other goal that he scored outside the United States has been in a friendly. So, so you know, how, if, if you play enough home matches against CONCACAF teams, you'll score 30 goals also. All right, let's zoom in a little bit on his performance in the game itself, and particularly not just A, but really the decisive moment um, they're in the 89th minute when Rafa Marquez scored that header. Uh, immediately after the ball went into the back of the net, Brad Guzan turned and looked straight at Josie Altidore and let, reamed him out. Let him, particularly. let him run right by him. Yeah, let, like, I mean, he was just totally flat-footed. It's, these, are, these are just the things, like, when if you're a striker and you're not scoring goals, you need to do everything else to make up for that. And ultimately, yeah, I would like, you know, I would be like, I would love to be like, all right, Altidore blew that. And yeah, that was bad. But, you know, Altidore creates so many chances and you're, whenever he has the ball at his feet, he's a threat to score. He's not though. So when, when that's the kind of guy you are, you need to do, you can't afford to miss defensive assignments. You can't afford to, you know, check out of a game and, and, you know, not chase balls down, which he tends to do when when teams get physical with him. And yeah, he it's it, it, it's just what bothers me most is you blew that assignment. Yeah. Uh, that goal is is pretty much on you. And what's going to happen is Tuesday you're going to be out there in the starting eleven again. Yeah, I mean that's that's really the most frustrating thing. But but you know we'll see we'll see. I I mean he'll be there. Bobby Wood and, and Josie Altidore are going to start up front. Yeah. That's the way it's going to be. But I mean, part of I, I have some sympathy for Klinsman in terms of what I feel like is really a lack of depth going forward, and I also think that the way in which Kristen Pulisic was kind of playing almost as though a centered forward in attack last night speaks to that lack of depth going also, forward. But I I, but the thing, one of the issues that that you said, and and I agree, Fabian Johnson did not have a great half, no. first half. No, he really. And didn't. I think one of one of the issues is when he would get the ball down that left side. Pulisic would be in the middle and coming over, like I said, at a lot of times that 3-4-3 looked like Pulisic was the guy in the middle and Altidore and Wood were kind of the ones on the wings. Altidore would be the guy coming over to help to give Fabian Johnson an option and, you know, to complete the triangle would be Michael Bradley. So if Fabian Johnson gave either of them the ball the way those guys were playing, uh, they, they couldn't do anything with it. So Johnson would then try to do things on his own, which eventually becomes predictable and Mexico could stop him. But he didn't exactly have help down that left side. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... Well, and it also... The thing that was frustrating to me is that he just seemed 
he just didn't seem comfortable pulling the ball into dangerous areas off that foot. Um, and right. I, and, and, you know, the, the best cross that he had in the first half was like in, the, I want to say the 20th or 21st minute. And as opposed to, you know, a really promising attack that he just made a complete mess of it and sent what I think was a cross, but might've even been a shot just way over the bar. Uh, a little bit later in that 20th minute attempt, he was just screaming down the side in order to desperately get a hold of the ball and send it in. And it was the best ball that he sent in in the first half. And But that, to me, it bespeaks a lack of comfort and confidence. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's part of it is link-up play, but it, but it also like, just why? didn't seem... It just didn't seem natural. The question is: the question is, why is there a lack of comfort and confidence? That's what I want. Not that, not that you have the answer. Yeah. But it's why, like the guy's playing so well right now in the Bundesliga. He's playing as you know a left winger, or and occasionally he's playing and he's tucked in behind the striker. Like he's playing sometimes in that Pulisic role for Borussia Mönchengladbach, and he's having a great season. Mm-hmm. And the same can be said. Um, a lot of people, because again, the narrative is is old, and it's oh, you mean DeAndre Yedlin didn't start? Like, why not? He's been starting all the other games, and people are mad that Timmy Chandler started. Timmy Chandler's having a fantastic year where he's been playing a lot of times as a wing back, and he's having a fantastic year in Germany. And this isn't the first time that he's had a fantastic year. But as people said going into the game, I'm just concerned because a lot of times that doesn't translate for Chandler to the national team, and it, it, the question is why? Like, yeah. Why can you not bring that performance? You know, right back, right backing is kind of simple. Like, no matter what your your formation is and what your tactics are, as a right back, it's defend and run up the right sideline and provide help. And when you get the ball deep, provide a cross. Like, there's not a lot of you need to look around and try to make moves and link up with people. It's you make overlap runs and you cross the ball and you get back and defend. So, you know, why? Like, how did? How could, why is he not able to, to translate it to the national team either? I mean, so I don't know how much stock we want to put into this, but um, just this morning, or maybe it was this afternoon, but U.S. Soccer Federation President Sunil Gulati said that he anticipates that Jurgen Klinsmann will be the manager for the United States through the end of World Cup qualifying, which to me was kind of, well, duh. Right. I mean, you know, even if even if things go like the worst case horror show scenario and we, in fact, miss out on the World Cup, eh, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to to fire him before that's absolutely a certainty. And even then, you know, if we've been mathematically eliminated with one game left to play, it doesn't really make sense to fire him. But now that said, um, you know, I I think if you get mathematically eliminated, he's fired. Like, let's. And even I can't defend that. If you're playing in a group with with uh, Costa Rica, Honduras, Panama, and Trinidad and Tobago, and you can't finish fourth yeah. in that group, you deserve to be fired. Okay, so let's then let's uh, let's let's move on and talk about the implications of this game for the U.S. I, moving I just, forward. Like, I, no, I, I mean, I'm I'm just saying uh, to just harp back onto that point though. Yeah, it it is weird that Sunil Gulati constantly has to clarify this. Especially when it's very clear that Sunil ain't—he's not firing Jurgen Klinsmann anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And Jurgen Klinsmann is Sunil's guy, and he's not going to fire him. At the same time, I do like that. I do like the fact that um, that 
Jurgen Klinsmann can go into pretty much every game and um, and and straight up know I can do I can do things my way and my job is not on the line because what he does and what he did is I changed the formation because I believe this is the formation that will allow our best players to be at their best and it's different from what they were doing like we keep we've tried different formations before the four four two is the best or has worked the best but I think we could be better in this one and I'm going to try it. And the media is knowing the media is going to kill me and the fans are going to kill me if it doesn't work. And that's exactly what happened. But Jurgen Klinsmann knows it's still my team. My job isn't going anywhere and I don't have to cave to their wishes because if you cave to their wishes, you become England where the media and the fans control the team and managers can't succeed there. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that, Boy, it's it's hard because we kind of it seems like not just not just you and I in our opinions, but also kind of the U.S. soccer, like the men's national team following as a whole. I get the sense that there's this kind of constant waffle of, uh, I mean, Jurgen Klinsmann is doing some things right. Maybe we're a little too harsh on him, but also do we really feel like he's getting the best out of these players? I don't think we can say yes to that question at this point. Well, I was talking, I was talking to a friend the other day and we, we brought it up and we said, look, look, here's, look at this team right now. Look at, imagine this starting 11, Ethan Horvath in goal, Yedlin, Carter Vickers, um, uh, John Brooks, Fabian Johnson. That's your back line midfield of, um, Julian Green, Caleb Stanko. Uh, I forgot who the other central midfielder was, but Pulisic on the wing, yeah. and then Jordan Morris and Bobby Wood up front. Like that's a good team, and that's because these kids are starting to come through the ranks, and th- we're now like the Pulisics and the Bobby Woods. This is the product of Jurgen Klinsmann whole thing of we have to change everything. Now we're starting to see the benefits. Michael Bradley was never going to become a player that was never going to like all of a sudden morph into someone as good as Christian Pulisic. You can't teach old dogs new tricks. And when Quisman took over, he had a bunch of old dogs and it's just about waiting for the, the puppies to grow up. Yeah. I, I mean, but the, the thing that I question is, and and this is this is a question that I feel has kind of analogs in other sports as well. But you know, at what point do you say, "All right, you're really good at X Y Z aspect in terms of trying to help the structure of U.S. soccer evolve and, in many ways, kind of play catch up to most of the world?" But are you necessarily? picking the best team, setting the team up the best? Are you necessarily motivating the players the way that you maybe need to be? I don't don't know that the answer is yes. And to my mind, it's somewhat reminiscent of, you know, head coaches who either take over the general manager role as well in the NFL or who relinquish that role because they recognize, oh, okay, that's not, that's not my strength, you know? And, and to me, those things... I think that's more of his strength, though, than than actual managing. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I totally agree with you. But that's, I mean, that's kind of my question is, on the one hand, it's all well and good to praise 
kind of the systemic work that Klinsman has done in the last five years in terms of working on that system, right? I mean, think about it. When he took over this team, Kristen Pulisic was like, you know, barely pubescent, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, yeah, when did he – he broke onto like the – Seen in like 2013 or something at that tournament. Well, what? How old is he now? He's he's 18. He just turned. He broke onto the scene when he was. So he broke onto the scene. He had that big tournament in 2013, and Quinsman took over. Yeah, Quinsman took over when you're, when Christian Pulisic was 13 years old. Yeah, exactly. And and so I think that he deserves. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> speaking of other parallels with, you know, granted we we're talking about Bobby Wood, but Rashford. I don't know that we can. Credit Marcus Ra- credit Louis Van Hall with the rise of Marcus Rashford. Maybe we can give Klinsman a little more credit in terms of you know how he's tried to develop the infrastructure of U.S. soccer all I the just... way da- you know all the way down from the the top flight. But I, as time goes on, I I think that you know at least I personally and I imagine probably the same stories with you, Paulie, that I have never wavered in my positive valuation of his insistence that the nature of U.S. soccer's youth system must change if the U.S. is going to be competing on the highest level internationally. And yet, as constant as my faith in that has remained, my faith in him as being able to strategically and tactically manage at the highest level, it seems like it's consistently shaken. And right, but, you know, uh, he's out after the next World Cup anyway. Yes. Like, he's going to step back and he's going to just, he's just, just going to be the technical director. And I think his value is being the technical director and all the stuff he's done. I think part of the reason he has to manage um, this team for five, well, yeah, like, I mean, he'll be, what, the manager for seven years is – because he has this vision for U.S. soccer, and as the manager, he knows if I'm if I'm the manager of the team, we won't stray from the vision. There won't be if, if imagine if he's technical director and um, he has a different manager, and that manager goes, "Hey, we've we've you know we've drawn two games and lost one in our last three. Like we just need to make a change and do something else." That would be detrimental to the long term future of the program. So by him managing, he's ensuring that that won't happen. Yeah, I. And, and I, I wonder, I wonder as frustrated as we are with, you know, him as a manager right in this moment in the immediate wake of this loss to an arch rival and, you know, what could end up proving a crucial pivot point for our hopes of qualifying for the next World Cup. I think that it's going to be hard. I, I mean, even from this moment, I think that we can see, like, that it's going to be hard to say that his legacy was not a good thing for U.S. soccer. And I think exactly. it will be, ultimately, but I also don't know that that means that he's necessarily the perfect man for the job. Um, so let's let's move forward and kind of talk about, I think we should touch at least briefly on Tim Howard's injury and our state you know, kind of state of the union for goalkeepers, but also particularly kind of how we're going to move forward having lost this first match. Well, the the biggest the biggest thing that annoys me in this thing is the whole people saying, "How could you change your formation right now in such a big game taking on Mexico? Was this really the time to to unveil a new formation?" And the answer, everybody's criticizing him for it. The answer is an is an unequivocal yes. This was the time to do it because you 
have nine games left, and ultimately, to get through the hex, you need like 15 points. Yeah. So, yes, winning your five home games will get the job done. We already lost one, so we can only get 12 points out of the home games. But we have nine games to get 15 points. And had we gone to this 3-4-3 against Trinidad and Tobago and we won, people would have been like, yeah, but it was Trinidad and Tobago at home. You know, we didn't get tested. So this was the perfect time to do it. It's a match that uh, you're going to get tested. You're playing a very good team. But ultimately, and this is what bothers me about the CONCACAF schedule and how they screwed it up, is it's a, win- it's a game against your rival that you absolutely want to win. But ultimately, it doesn't mean much because the loser of this game has nine games left to get, to get 15 points. And Mexico got through with 11 points last year, yeah. last I mean, time around. Mexico did everything <laughs> they could to not qualify, and they qualified. Well, and thanks to a last-ditch effort by the U.S. after we'd already clinched. It was the yes. only way they made it through. Um, I, I mean, I think that, that, yeah, you're right. I mean, nothing is over, and especially considering that our very last game you know, just under a year from now in mid-October of 2017 is against Trinidad and Tobago, then you have to feel that if we have, I would say if we have 12 points, maybe even 13, then going into that last game, we have to feel that we're going to be able to clinch. But yes. but it just... This is still, this is, like people forget... This is still the best U.S. soccer team we've had in quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm slightly... And it was hard to say that a year ago. It was, it was definitely hard to say that a year ago. But right now, we have... Because a year ago, you were looking at this team being like, we still just have all the... We have all the players that we used to have. We just... We don't have Donovan anymore to bail us out, to be that extra guy that takes us to the next level. We have a guy now that might be better than Landon Donovan. I agree with that, but I also feel, to me, the huge difference right now, granted it was similar to a year ago, but not to two years ago, is that with Tim Howard being out due to injury, what which looked, you know, for all the world to see to be a hamstring issue, right? I, mean, just, I think it was a groin, actually. Oh, really? I thought it was hamstring. But in, in any case, he clearly was a muscle issue, right? So he's... Yeah. He is... He's, he's out He's out against Costa Rica. Yeah, absolutely. He has no chance. He, he there's, there's no reason why he couldn't and shouldn't be back by March... But if we, just looking quickly forward to that game, that to me is a game that we have to get something from. Even if it's just a point. Even if it's just a point. But if we have zero points out of our first two fixtures, that's that's a real hole. Yes. And getting one point, having one point after two games or even, or having zero points after two games is awful. Having one point would not be good. And everybody right now is saying, well, it's pretty much good, like, we ain't getting a win. Look at the record that we have there. We haven't won in nine qualifiers. Everybody seems to be obsessed with history right now, except for the fact that they're ignoring that we hadn't lost to Mexico at home since 1972. Mexico had never scored in Columbus in a World Cup qualifying match in four previous tries, and they just won. So yeah. history means nothing, ultimately. Yeah. That could get reversed. Second of all, Costa Rica, I mean, they used to have like the world's I want, I want to say the world's worst stadium, but that's an insult to everybody else in CONCACAF. Um, <laughs> they got a much better one. They have a new stadium with a much better pitch that's not like the rocky, bumpy thing that Costa Rica used to have, which is better for the United States. That's 
to our advantage. Yes, we're still going to have to deal with fans honking their horns and, and setting off fire alarms in the hotel outside, like while we're trying to sleep. We're still going to have to uh, deal with fans creating traffic jams so that we can't get to the stadium. But on the field, the field will be much better, which will play into our strengths because let's face it, we're the better team. Costa yeah. Rica, I know everybody falls in love with them because they had a good run at the World Cup. They had a really easy group. They got the benefit of a really easy schedule. Yeah, but, and, I, but I still think that our, uh, I think that our first two games at home against Mexico and especially on the road to Costa Rica, I think that those are certainly... They're the two hardest games. Yeah. Two, two of the three well, hardest games yeah. that we're going to play. There you go. I was going to say two of the three, with the exception obviously being the trip to Azteca. But, right, and that's not even and and I'll, I'm going to tell you this: that's not as difficult of a game as it used to be. Yeah, because no, that's more the specter of history than the quality of the players on the pitch. It's not even that. It's it's one of the reasons. One of the reasons Columbus used to be a haven for us is because it was always cold, and Mexico couldn't deal with that. They don't like the cold. You know, they they come from a warmer climate. Players aren't used to it. It's a problem for them. Mexico these days has many more players than they used to playing in Europe. So the cold isn't a factor for them. But what is a factor for them, and what killed us always, was playing in the altitude of Azteca. Mexico's players don't play at Azteca anymore because they play all their friendlies in the United States. And all those players who play in Europe aren't playing at the Azteca. So going into the Azteca, it's going to be just as hard for both teams. The same way that the cold weather in Columbus was no longer an advantage for us, the altitude in Azteca is no longer going to be an advantage for them. Yeah, I I think that, I mean, I think that you're right. I think that maybe, well, okay, maybe we should give some final thoughts as we sign off here um, to end this U.S. special. But for me, I would say it would be really bad if we lost to Costa Rica on November 15th. I think that we are fully capable of losing to Costa Rica, or maybe a better way to put it is that Costa Rica could definitely beat us. And as bad as we've just said, being without a point from your first two games, like, yeah, it's a huge hole. But even if that's the case, this is still a very manageable route to qualification, even with zero points at this point, especially considering we're not going with our number one choice goalkeeper to Costa Rica. And, you know, we're just coming off playing inarguably the strongest other team in this group. So correct. And I, I think that there's a good chance that Costa Rica gets a draw, if not a win, but it's not over. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say, Hey, like we're definitely going to go into Costa Rica and win. This is, Probably our second most difficult road game. But Costa Rica, they are the third best team in CONCACAF. They're probably the third best team by far. But that's pretty much like saying last year, uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach was the third best team in the Bundesliga. They were not even close to the top two. And we are in the top two. We are significantly better than Costa Rica. The last three games we played against them at home, uh, we won 1-0 in the snow game. Then we won 4-1 in a friendly, and then we won 4-0 at the Copa America. Starting to look like that snow game didn't exactly hurt Costa Rica. It actually hurt us in our ability to actually go out there and blow the doors off of them. Yes, I would prefer to not have to deal with Brad Guzan, but he was the goalkeeper when we shut them out 4-0. So uh, I'm not – it's not something that I'm terrified of. I still think we could go in there and get our first win. I I think that – 
I, I think you're right. I really... God, I hope that Sacha Kleisten and his mustache are in the starting 11. And, for that and, let's, and let's make one thing clear. They are going to play a 4-4-2 in this game. And it's not because the, it's, everybody's going to be like, well, thank God they didn't go back to the 3-5-2 and he made the adjustments. It's, you have to play differently on the road in CONCACAF than you do at home. It's that simple. <laughs> I mean, and we'll, we'll see just how they line up on Tuesday. Yeah. We'll, be, you know, we'll be back with our, our regularly scheduled programming before then. So uh, thanks for joining us in this special U.S. episode of today's Corner Kicks podcast. Uh, as always, uh, you can find us on Twitter. Today's CK is the main Twitter handle. Pauly? I'm Pete Quest LWFN. I'm Keats was better. Someday we'll actually cover the mystery. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for listening, and we will catch you next week. Goodbye. You could not write a script like this.